what I'm holding in my hand here is a glove. Now, the glove by itself is very flat and it's kind of limp and, and useless, really. I cannot do anything with it. I can't grasp anything with it. It can't move, really. It has no life or, or dynamism in itself. But it's still a glove. Now, I want you to remember that. Because I'm going to compare the glove with a Christian today. But I want you to notice now the difference. When my hand goes inside the glove, it comes to life. It takes the shape of my hand. It takes the movement of my hand. As my hand moves, the glove moves. Uh, My fingers and my thumb cause this glove to come alive. Then when I show you first. Everything my hand can do, this glove can do, right? Why? Because my hand is formed inside the glove. And the glove takes on the shape of my hand. Now, today I'm going to submit to you that 21st Christians in the West are like this glove. Anemic, if ineffectual, defeated, and immature. They may have started well, but then they got stuck in a spiritual ditch somewhere. They may have started well, but their growth got stunted. They may have started in God's power, but then they end up with self-help and uh, self-positive thinking. Why? Paul gives us the answer in Galatians chapter 4. I want you to know, as you're finding it in your Bibles... That verse 19 of Galatians 4 is the bedrock of the entire chapter. It is the foundational stone of the whole chapter. My little children, for whom I am again in pains of childbirth until Christ, is what? Formed in you. What does that mean? What does it mean? Here's the glove again. My hand is formed in this glove. Now, I want to ask you a question, okay? Can you see my hand? No, you can't. (laughs) It wasn't a trick question. It was really... (laughs) You can't see my hand. But you cannot deny that my hand is the source of power in this glove. You cannot deny that my hand is the source of dynamism in this glove, that my hand is the source of life in this glove. The glove has no life in itself. The glove has no strength in itself. The glove has no dynamism in itself. And beloved, listen to me, in the same way, in the same way, we are only effective when Christ is fully formed in us. We are only having power in life to defeat sin, having victory in life, when Christ is formed in us. We can only bear fruit when Christ is born in us and formed in us. And Paul here in Galatians chapter 4 is in anguish. I wish you you get the depth of the meaning of that word, anguish. It it is the the greatest pain a living person can experience, more than physical pain. And if he was living today, I'm convinced that he would say, I'm in anguish over 21st century Christians. 
He's in anguish because he wants them to come back to their first love. He's in anguish because he wants them to get away from this falling away from the truth. He's in anguish because he does not want them to rely on self, does not want them to rely on legalism. He does not want them to rely on performance. He is in anguish because he wants them to see that Christ is formed in them. And it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. That's why he's in anguish. In fact, the entire chapter, what he does, he makes an appeal to them. And that appeal, he does it in three ways. First, by reminding them of their first love. He reminding them of their first relationship to Christ when they came from sin to Christ. He's reminding them the first 11 verses. He reminds them of that relationship. Secondly, in verses 12 to 18, he's reminding them of the personal relationship that he had with them in the past. And then he finally reminds them in the third part with verses 20 to 31, he reminds them of the covenant of grace. He tells them, first of all, as he reminds them of how when they came to Christ, they ceased to be slaves. They became sons and daughters of the living God, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Not slaves. He said, some of you were slaves to the gods. Others were slaves to dead religions. Others were, were slaves to sin and guilt and pain. But now, when you came to Christ, you have become sons and daughters, not slaves. Our Lord Jesus Christ paid dearly for that liberation, which most of us take it for granted. Our Lord Jesus Christ paid dearly for that redemption. He paid dearly for our salvation and our adoption. And He does not treat us as slaves. He treats us as brothers and sisters, and he told us to look up to heaven and call his daddy Abba. It's the most endearing term in the Hebrew language. Please hear me right. The Galatian church was a multicultural church. So, in every one of those cultures, Jews, Greeks, and Romans, they all had a ceremony that celebrated a boy going from childhood to adulthood. Every one of them. The Jews, of course, had the bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah was a serious stuff. When the boy becomes the son of the law, as a matter of fact, that's how the father prays at the bar mitzvah. He said, Blessed be thou, O God, who has taken from me the responsibility of this boy. Serious stuff. And then the boy prays. I want you to listen carefully to the prayer of the boy. Oh, my God and the God of my fathers, on this solemn and sacred day, which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eye upon thee and declare with sincerity and truth that henceforth I will keep thy commandments and undertake to bear responsibility for my actions toward thee. Serious stuff. The Greeks had a very similar ceremony. At the age of 18, they don't shave the, the boy's hair until that day when he turns 18. And then he moves from being a boy, which they call Ephibos, to being a man, Anthropos. And what they do on that ceremony is they cut his hair. And then they take that hair and they offer it as an offering to the god Apollo. The Romans had a very similar 
ceremony. Between somewhere in the ages of 14 to 17, the Roman boys will exchange their boyhood robe, or called togo, with a man's togo. But that's not all. At this particular time, the ceremony, which they call the ceremony of liberation, the boy takes all his childhood toys and he destroys them. (laughs) And then he offers them to the gods as a sign that he has put all of his childhood behind. Now he's a man unresponsible. And Paul uses this cultural experience that is familiar to all of them uh, to press his point, the important point, the serious point, the eternal point, namely that when Christ came into this world, the law's purpose has been fulfilled. As we saw in the last message, the Apostle Paul is saying that when Christ came, He ushered the age of redemption. The law served as a mirror, uh, but now it's fulfilled its purpose, brought us to Christ for the believer. Uh, The law served as a pipeline to grace, but now He completed the job once we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The law is no longer our master, but our friend. So when the Son of God born into this world was born of a virgin, has to be. He was fully God and fully man. Although he was born in a human flesh, he was sinless. He was perfect. He's the only one was and is, will always be. Although he was born under the law, and yet he kept all of the law perfectly, all of the time. He's the only one who could, only one who did. Although he had coexisted with the Father before time and space, and yet he learned obedience according to Hebrews 5.8. When God the Son came into this world, he inherited all of his Father's estate, the entire universe. He inherited it because he's the only one who pleased the Father. And when the Son came into the world, He and He alone could utter these most endearing words when He looked up to heaven to His Father and says, Abba. Abba. And that's why Paul said, he said, the Christian life is not about trying harder. That's for car rental motto. The Christian life is not some rituals or some list of do's and don'ts. It's not ceremony. It's not performance. It's not self-help. It is not through the dead-end street of legalism. It is a matter of repenting and then accepting the grace of God. It's a matter of accepting the gift of eternal life. It's a matter of signing the adoption paper. It's a matter of repenting of my sins. It's a matter of accepting the privilege and the responsibility of our inheritance. That's why God does not deal with us as slaves. He deals with us as precious children. We are fellow heirs. Do you know that we're going to inherit what Jesus inherits? And the only reason we're going to is because He is the one who qualified for it. We're going to come on his coattail. What happened with the Galatians and the Galatian congregation is happening to so many Christians today. They forget the royal adoption and they settle for being paupers. They forget their priestly position and they behave like beggars. They forget their prophetic call and they regress to performance. 
I honestly, truthfully can imagine the Apostle Paul as he was writing those words and the tears streaming down his cheeks. I can truly imagine him. I truly understand it because I've done that. I've wept tears over believers who regressed and went back to the wilderness of performance instead of allowing Christ to be formed in them. And Paul said in verse 11, he said, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my effort on you. As if to say, all of the miles that I have traveled, all of the beatings that I took, all of the loneliness that I have suffered, all of the illnesses that I've experienced, all of the imprisonments, all for nothing, if you depart from the truth. So he first appeals to them by reminding them of their first relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ when they received salvation from his hand. Then secondly, he reminds them of his personal relationship with them, past personal relationship with him. And Paul, I mean, he uses some very, very emotional words if you understand the language. I mean, this is, this is very emotional. You see, Paul enjoyed close fellowship with them with these believers in Galatians. They were like family to him. They really were. But now, because some people came and lied about them, about the Apostle Paul and his teaching of the truth, because some people came and deceived them by lying to them and falsely accusing the Apostle Paul, the relationship, their relationship with him, not his with them, but their relationship with him chilled. Have you ever been in a situation where a relationship got chilled? See, in the first three chapters, he argues logically. He argues intellectually. He, he refutes the false teachers. But then he takes a moment. <laughs> he takes a deep breath. And focuses on the personal relationship that he had with them. Listen, I think, personally, the Apostle Paul understood human nature far better than any psychiatrist, any psychologist. God bless you, it's fine, but I'm telling you, this man understood human nature like very few people. And Paul understood, he understood empirically when he makes a strong refute like he did in the first three chapters, what the miserable Judaizers did, he knew the Galatians are going to put up their defensive mechanisms. And when you put up a defensive mechanism, you're not hearing a thing a person is saying. When people become defensive, they cannot hear you. You can be talking until you're blue in the face. Ah, you see it in marriage between husband and wife. Don't elbow your husband. You know it's true. When one or both put up the defensive mechanism, they're talking past each other. And that can go for days or sometimes for years, sadly. You watch it happen between parents and children. When they put, the kids put up their defensive mechanism, they're not listening. It happens between believers. When they put up their defensive shield... No matter what you say, is falling on deaf ears. And so Paul wisely takes him back. He takes him back to the spiritual friendship and fellowship that they have shared once. He takes him back to that personal warmth of relationship. He takes him back 
to their kindness and their gratitude to Paul that they showed toward him. He takes them back to their selfless love by which they ministered to the Apostle Paul. He takes them back to the joy and the excitement by which they received the gospel for the first time. He takes them all the way back. And that is why in verse 19, Paul refers to them, literally the word says, my little children. And let me tell you something. Culturally, this is not a condescending term. It sounds like, you know, he's putting them down, my little children. No, no, no. Culturally, you've got to understand, it is the most endearing term that he could use. My beloved, precious ones. In fact, the Apostle John uses that term a lot, but not Paul. Paul only uses it very seldom. Why? Because he wants to assure them of his love for them. Please hear me right. Whenever you are dealing with a wayward and a compromising Christian who refuse to come back to the truth, who refuse to believe the truth, who are living in disobedience, in the wilderness of that disobedience, sometimes it's important to appeal to their emotions. I'm not making the stuff up. I'm telling you what Paul did. It's important to appeal to the past relationship. It's important to appeal to the joys of past friendship and fellowship. And Paul is saying to them, I love you. I love you so deeply. I love you genuinely. My love for you has not changed. Your love for me has, but my love for you is not. I love you because I don't want anything from you. My love for you is pure. My love for you is so deep that I... I'm trying to warn you of the trouble and the consequences of what happens when you depart from biblical truth. Because my love for you is genuine, it's real. And because of that, I am not just giving you another opinion. I'm not just giving you another idea. I'm not just giving you another philosophy. I am telling you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now, beloved, in our witness, in our exhorting of others, winning the argument should not be your final aim. There are many times people win the argument, but they lose the person. Our aim should be speaking the truth and yet in love. And that's why verses 13 and 14, Paul said, Instead of being revolted by my illness when I was with you, you cared for me so deeply. You ministered to me so lovingly. You served me with all your heart. He's telling them that it was a privilege for him and an honor to experience their love for him because they received him like they've received Jesus Christ himself. And that's saying something. Paul brought them the good news. Paul brought them peace with God. Paul brought them and taught them the grace of God. He he brought them the joy of salvation. He brought them the truth that sets them free from sin and guilt. And in gratitude, they served him so lovingly, so selflessly. They say, but why then? Why is this chill in the relationship. Why? Why? Why is that chilling relationship taking place now? 
uh, the lies of the Judaizers. They not only brought them falsehood and false teaching, but they also brought false accusation of the Apostle Paul. Paul was quick to express his feelings of love to the Galatians believers, even though they turned on him. That's because he did not view them as villains. He viewed them as victims. Listen, he did not minimize their responsibility for falling in that trap and believing the lie. He did not minimize that. But you see, his longing was for restoring them and not just for winning an argument. In fact, Paul uses here the most incredible term that is used today, to this day, in the Middle East. When you talk about a person gouging his eye to give it to you, I mean, I, I know it doesn't make sense here. But trust me, when Paul used it, it made a lot of sense. It is still, in some cultures, still makes a lot of sense. It is the most incredible thing that you can offer somebody is you take your eye and give it to them. It's far stronger than saying, I'll die for you. And the motivation of these false teachers was because they were up to no good. Just like a lion, when he catches his prey, he takes the prey away from all the other animals so that he can munch on it by himself without competition. And that's what they were trying to do. They put a wedge between them and the Apostle Paul so that they can munch on them, spiritually speaking. Sadly, the Galatians fell in that trap. Oh, the Judaizers probably used some flattering words. Where all Paul is such a, a crash guy who just said what he thought and plain talking guy. And they spoke with soft words, flattery. They bewitched them. Paul did not want the Galatians to be his followers. He wanted them to be the disciples of Jesus. He loved them enough to tell them the truth. And that is why he would not back down not one iota. And that is why he comes to this foundational verse, verse 19. He says, my relationship with you has no other motive other than your salvation, your good, your growth in Christ. You being, having Christ formed in you. That's all I want. That's what I live for. And he says, that's why I'm in anguish over you. As one anguishes over in a childbirth. And then now he says, I'm actually anguishing twice over delivering the same baby. <laughs> Imagine the pain of childbirth. Now men don't even try. It's all right. We will never get it. Just take the women's word for it. It's indescribable pain. And Paul is saying, I'm going through this anguish over you again because you've wandered away from the truth. Like a faithful mother, the Apostle Paul wanted to see that Christ is what? Please hear me right. The reason Christ wants to be formed in us because he cannot be formed through performance. He cannot be formed through religion. He cannot be formed through rituals because Christ cannot be formed in us 
when we ignore His will and do things for our God, do business for ourselves, because Christ cannot be formed in us without surrendering to Him our all. And that is why we have no option but to surrender if we want Christ to be formed in us. Now try to imagine if this glove has only two of my fingers, okay? Just two. I cannot do anywhere near as much with these two fingers as I do with the rest of my hand. But that's what a lot of believers do. They give Christ the crumbs of their time, the crumbs of their money, the crumbs of their social life, and they say, we're Christians. And the reason Christ wants to be formed in us because He wants to replace our weakness with His strength. He wants to replace our folly with His wisdom. He wants to replace our greed for His grace. He wants to replace our lust for His love. He wants to replace our problems with His peace. He wants to replace our jealousy for His joy. He wants to replace our cowardness with His courage. That's why. Don't just give Him a portion one or two of the fingers. Give him all of the hand to fill the whole glove. So he reminds him of the relationship with Christ. He reminds him of his personal warmth and friendship with him. And then finally, he reminds him of the covenant of grace. And what he does in these 11 verses, verses 20 to 31, he uses an allegory. Now, allegory is something I grew up with. In the Middle East, you always use allegories. They always give it to you in allegory form. And you just have to figure it out. And yeah, Jesus did the same thing with parables. But let me summarize it for you. He said Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac is the son of promise. Ishmael is a son, the result of Sarah and Abraham contriving, trying to improve on the will of God, doubting the promise of God, And so the slave woman, Hagar, produced Ishmael. Listen to me. As a result of that, 3,000 years ago, the whole world standing right now at the brink of disaster. But that's a topic of another sermon. I'm going to get to it one day. But here's what Paul is saying. Let me give it to you in a summary form. We, the believers in the Lord Jesus, we are like Isaac. We're children of promise. We're children of the covenant of grace. We're the children of mercy and forgiveness. Why on God's earth do you want to become Ishmael, the son of a slave woman? We're the children of Sarah, the free woman. Why would you want to be a child of a slave? And so the question is this. How do you become a child of grace? Now, after grace, it's a different story. How do you become a child of grace? There may be one person here today who hasn't even taken that first step. You might be into churchianity, you might be into religion, but you really have never understood what it means to be a son or a daughter of grace. How, how do you do it? I want you to read my lips. Nothing. You come to him in repentance and allow him to be formed in you. There is now 50 steps or 20 steps or 10 steps. You don't need to have willpower. It's not keeping certain rules on certain days and certain this or certain that. All it takes is a repentance and surrender. Surrender. 
And surrender means you give him your all. You give him your all. Your all. You give him your plans. You give him your will. You give him your agenda. Hold back nothing. Hide nothing until he's formed in you. I'm going to tell you this as I conclude, but this songwriter, Francis Havergale, is really a challenge for me (laughs) in a good way. She wrote magnificent songs. She wrote magnificent poetry. And for many years, she felt that she's not totally surrendered to the Lord, that Christ has not fully formed in her. Always. And she wrote this marvelous hymn like, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, for thee. Until one day, it was December 2nd, 1873. She has a very precious box that's filled with rare jewelry that has become an idol for her. And she knew it. And as the finger of the Holy Spirit kept pointing to that idol, she did not have the peace and the joy that Christ has already formed in her until that morning when she walked to the church missionary society office in London. She walked in there and handed the box. When she went home that day, she was able to write the last stanza of that hymn. She could not write it before. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite will I withhold. What are you withholding? What are you withholding? Only you can answer that. Nobody can answer that for you. Only you know what you're keeping from Christ, from being fully formed in you and in your life. Only you know what are withholding. For you... It might not be even something that you need to give up. And maybe for some. But God wants to be sure that you are at least willing to give it up. Not a mite will I withhold. And so, He wants to be formed fully in you and in me. Will you let Him? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, what a great God you are. You are good all the time. We bless you. We praise you. You keep talking to us. You keep addressing us. You keep ministering to us. And you keep prodding us. And Father, it is now our responsibility to say yes, Lord. For we say this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.